Joining us now to talk about this, we'd like to welcome Phil Gursky back to the program, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and a former analyst at CSIS. Phil, good morning. Morning, Supriya. Um, so, you know, Greg and I just sort of laid it out there um, with respect to what happened in Vienna. I mean, is there any notion or, or sense with respect to what's out there currently that what happened in Vienna is connected at all to what happened in Nice? I mean, it, it, it strikes me as rather coincidental, right, that these two attacks would have happened so close in proximity to one another in the same sort of region of Western Europe. But I, again, I'm, I'm a layperson and I have, uh, that's just me speculating. What, what is your uh, view on this as an expert? Yeah, I think that's a good question to ask. But I would, again, I would caution that the information is still coming in. What we do know so far is that the assailant was an Albanian man, Albanian origin, although he, he grew up in, in Austria. He had been actually jailed for wanting to join ISIS. He was one of 20 Austrians who sought to join ISIS and was stopped from doing so and was imprisoned. He was let go early, and then he carried his attack last night. So the actual motive for his attack, whether it was tied to the, you know, the, the Muhammad cartoons or, as you said, the attacks in Nice and the attacks in Paris, is so far unknown. But what is known definitively so far was that he was an ISIS wannabe he was frustrated in going to join the group. He was put in jail. He was released early. And then he carried his attack last night, killing five people and wounding I don't know how many. So definitively a terrorist attack, definitively t- tied to ISIS. But the exact motive is still still remains to be determined. Phil, you know, it's a question that we've had here as well in this country with respect to what do we do with these ISIS wannabes? Um, there was a very uh, prominent case in Quebec a few years ago with respect to students, uh, CJEP students, so like 18, 19 years old, um, one of them, in fact, female, wanting to go to Syria to join ISIS. How do we, well, how do we, A, stop them from becoming radicalized to begin with? But I mean, B, if they want to join ISIS, how do we get them back into society because there's a concern from from some corners to suggest that if you put them into institutions like prison then it only further radicalizes them oh god how much time do we have this morning (laughs) those those are really great questions i've been quite hardline on this i think people that have wanted to join islamic state should in fact be tried and and convicted it is an offense under under canadian law to want to join a terrorist group it's as simple as that the couple in quebec was actually acquitted so they didn't, go, they didn't go to jail. And the question remains, well, why? They certainly wanted to go join a terrorist group. Why weren't they found guilty? Your larger question about radicalization, I mean, that, that would take us hours to discuss. I wrote a whole book on radicalization back in 2015. But th- these are complex questions. And I think that there's been a, a, a tendency, especially in Canada of late, to kind of dismiss this as a threat. We're all about the far right right now, far right this, far right that, which is, is truly an important issue. But the ISIS guys and the al-Qaeda guys haven't gone away. And if you look internationally, guys, at the scale of the number of attacks, number of victims, it's still 95% Islamist extremism directed. And we can't ignore that fact. So, yeah, these are all fantastic issues that, that are really, really complicated. And, and I just wish people recognized how complicated they were. Bottom line is that there is no easy solution to any of this. Phil Gursky is our guest, of course, um, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You know, Supriya asked that question to you, Phil, and it got me thinking about the the Canadian Tire attack. And, and there again, textbook case, and that's three and a half years ago now. It's a 34-year-old woman, and, and she, you know, again, I suppose if you walk into Canadian Tire and start attacking employees with a knife and a golf club and you don't explain why, you're getting less of a sentence, aren't you? But but when you, you know, declare support for a terror group, we're more willing, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be, to put 
you away for longer. But once that sentence runs out, to Supriya's point, it really doesn't matter what what you know what kind of psychological evaluation there is. That person's out. Like your sentence is your sentence at that point. They can't extend it because they don't think you're ready to re you know reassimilate. Can they? Yeah, that's a great question, Greg. And, you know, this is this is the Rehab Dukmash case. Now, she was actually she got as far as Turkey to join ISIS. She was turned back, and then she carried an attack in the name of ISIS in that Canadian Tire. And thankfully, no one was seriously hurt because she only had a golf club and a. She, you know, I don't think she had anything really serious. I think she had an axe or something. I don't recall. But you're right. She's now in prison, and it, you know, there's a huge issue about prisons in Canada. What what kind of de-radicalization, if possible, do we do with these people? And I've been skeptical about de-radicalization because it's really hard to measure. It's really hard to determine if you're getting through to people. And so you're right. When they when they you know when they finish their sentences, we have no other alternative but to let them out. So what does that mean? Have they recanted? Have they rejected the views? Are they willing to become regular Canadians? All these are, are questions to which we have no answers right now. And you know, so do we, do we put them away and lock you know and, and throw away the key? That's what some people would say. We don't do that here in Canada. So it remains an outstanding issue as to what is this threat. Once they're in prison, can they radicalize other people in prison? I certainly saw that when I was at CSIS, people radicalizing within prison. What happens when they get out? Again, you guys are asking all the tough questions this morning, to which I don't have the answers. <laughs> well, I'll give you, I'll, I'll double down and give you another one. And that is, I guess, what I would call the mental illness card. Um, it's a serious problem. We're talking about it more amongst each other um, and professionally and personally and in workplaces. But I don't think I need to tell you that there are people and and people in the legal industry that will help uh, an accused utilize that card and and play it. And of course, you would say, yeah, somebody that walked into Canadian Tire with a bow and arrow, a golf club, whatever, and start attacking people has some form of mental illness. But there's a there's a great debate as to the extent that we should care when we're laying down a sentence because it's it's putting the public at harm. You know, it's a fantastic issue. And, you know, I have a, a, a buddy in the United Kingdom who has looked at this issue. And actually, terrorists are, if anything, less likely to be mentally ill than your average the average person. Now, the guy in Quebec City, he appears to have had mental issues, but Rehab Dukwash didn't. There was a case in Toronto, remember, a couple of years ago, guys? A guy went into a Canadian Forces recruiting center with a knife. He was found not guilty due to mental illness. That's pretty rare in Canadian judicial history in terms of terrorism. And in, in, again, going back to my time at CSIS, we found, and we're not psychiatrists or psychologists, I'm not, I'm not yeah. claiming to be, but the vast majority of people were as, average, were as ordinary as you, you and I and Supriya, which kind of strikes people as odd. Like you said, a person with a bow and arrow on Canadian Tire must be nuts. They're not. They have other issues, maybe, but they're not mentally incompetent. And you're right, defenses do try to play this card all the time. And, and one has to ask the question, is it legitimate to try to get people off on a bogus mental health issue when, in fact, there are mental health issues there? So... Again, we're left with the same questions. What do we do with these people? I think sentences should be very long. I'm very biased. I've been working in security intelligence for more than three decades. People would disagree with me. But again, the threat is there. We're not quite sure if de-radicalization works. What is the, the threat to public safety when, we, when these people get out? It's, a great, it's a, yeah, a great question. I think Canadians should be concerned about it. And Phil, uh, with respect, because I mean, in this in the specific case of the terrorist in uh, in, in Vienna, um, as you've noted, he you know, was apprehended at one point. Um, what do we do with them once they're out? I understand you can't obviously surveil people twenty four seven, but from an intelligence gathering perspective, uh, you keep an eye on them. You monitor their internet activity. Is that even legal? Like, how, how do you go about doing that? 
Well, it's certainly, like in Canada, Sapria, so, you know, if, if you pose a threat and a CSIS suspects you pose a threat, you, they have the full, they have a full legislative agenda to follow you, to, to monitor your internet, get a court warrant, whatever kind of thing. But, you, you know, you, you raise the point. We can't watch everybody. There's far too many people. You look at the United Kingdom, they have 23,000 people of interest. How do you follow 23? You don't follow 23,000 people. You can't. Resources are limited. If you take resources from A to put to B, then A suffers. And, and this is a, a perennial question for the RCMP and thesis. They only have so many men and women on the ground who can do investigations. Now, I would argue, and people would, would criticize me for this, uh, if you're in prison, I don't have to look at you just yet because you're in prison. Once you're back on the streets, I have to make a gut call. Do I look at you as opposed to somebody else? And you're basically, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of resources. And in a perfect world, we would have enough resources to look at them all. We don't. So, so decisions have to be made. And I'll tell you one thing, guys. When you work in security intelligence, you're only as good as your last failure. If you make a decision and you follow the wrong person and that person ends up killing somebody, the first question is, why weren't you following Greg? Or why weren't you following Supriya? Why are you following the wrong people? So you, it's always a damned if you do and a damned if you don't. I don't want to sound, you know, that I'm complaining here, but that's the reality of working in this business. So, yeah, there are far too many people out there and there are limited resources. And so you have to make these decisions on a daily basis. And, Phil, would you mind shedding some light on just how different intelligence agencies would communicate with one another, not within the same country, but within different countries? So with respect to um, Austria and France, would they have any sort of intelligence sharing mechanism so that the authorities, you know, know who's on a a list, so to say, um, from another country? 100%. So CSIS is allowed under its what's called Section 17 of the CSIS Act to enter into any intelligence sharing relationship with any intelligence agency on, in the known universe, provided it gets a sign-off. I think it's from two ministers, foreign affairs and public safety, or I think it is, or D&D. Uh, certainly in my time at CSIS, I engage with intelligence services in, in well over 100 countries around the world. Uh, there are sharing relationships. You know, we give, we give, we get kind of thing because we're all in this together. And especially, you know, like-minded allied nations, especially Western nations, we would share a lot of intelligence on who we were worried about, who they're, who they're worried about, because if people do travel from A to B, and we know Canadians have traveled abroad to join terrorist groups, we want to let our allies know that, that, you know, someone's coming into your territory and might pose, might pose a danger. So thankfully, uh, there are very good intelligence sharing relationships with a lot of countries, and Canada, as a relatively small player in this, benefits a lot from the information we get from our allies. Phil, as always, thanks so much for your time and for your vantage point this morning. My pleasure, guys. Have a good day. Thanks, Phil. You too. That again, Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and a former analyst at CSIS.